chapter 13. I'll read verses 7 and 8, though we're not going to get to verse 8 tonight. There is one who makes himself rich, yet has nothing, and one who makes himself poor, yet has great riches. Now, here we have two Proverbs that have more to say about riches and poverty, and we've looked at that theme already. And these are the two extremes of social standing in any society in the world. In America, most people uh, live in somewhere in between these two extremes, and we call that the middle class. And that's a sliding scale. It's a large swath of people that uh, uh, in our society that are considered to be poor, and if they were in some other country, depending on the country, uh, they'd be considered middle class, or in some cases, they would be considered actually wealthy. And so, uh, in our society, uh, how we view wealth, and especially how we view our own standing in relation with wealth, is an important matter. God's Word has a lot to say about value, and uh, uh, and uh, value and worth. And instruction about the true worth of things is found throughout the Holy Scriptures, isn't it? And when I say things, I don't mean objects or tangible things. When I say things, what I mean here is we need to understand that it means everything in reality. For example, Jesus said, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. And now this is a statement from Jesus about value. Uh, Valuation is a science of determining the true worth of something. Jesus said, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, your soul is a thing. It's something having to do with reality. And here's the thought. How much would a person value a cup of cold water at a party when all around them there are punch bowls filled with all kinds of delicious drinks? Now, what would that same cup of cold water be valued to a soul in hell? Think about that. Think of the rich man in Luke chapter 16 who begged for Lazarus just to be sent, just to dip his finger in water and just touch his tongue with that little drop of water. I think about how, how much, uh, what the value of water is in that situation. Well, every day, the value of things, the value of material things, the value of, of spiritual things, the value of relationships, the value of our health, uh, every day these matters are weighed and we respond to situations in accordance to how we value them. Uh, some of you... Uh, Older folks may remember Jack Benny. I'm sure some of you younger people never heard of Jack Benny. But when I was a kid, it was a Jack Benny show. And he's a comedian. And he was known for his his shtick was that he was a tightwad, you know. And he was always making jokes out of how tight, how, how what a penny pincher he was. Well, there's one of his episodes where uh, a hold-up man comes up and holds him up and says, your money or your life? And Jack stands there for a little bit and the guy says, which is it going to be? Jack said, give me a minute. <laughs> you know, the value of things, right? 
And so <clears throat> uh, our value system often goes through large changes. Think about it, parents. How did your value, cha- value system change when you had your first child? It changed a lot, didn't it? In a lot of different ways. Um, <clears throat> God knows how important it is for us to have the right value system. And so the Bible has much to say about these matters because how we think about these matters matters. I, I uh, give you a little illustration from my own life, and that is that before NAFCO had a line of credit and we had no credit with the bank, you know, every week uh, uh, payroll would come around and I would tend to worry about it because inevitably, be Monday morning, I didn't have much, enough money for payroll that had to be paid on on uh, whether it was Wednesday or Friday, we pay on Wednesday these days, it might have been Friday, but didn't have the money and didn't see how I was going to get the money and it caused me anxiety and I would I would stress about uh, making payroll, but every week God would always somehow give me the money and we'd be able to at least make payroll and uh, struggling, struggling days. Um, but uh, But I got to thinking about it and uh, I was thinking how I would uh, uh, worry about that more than I would worry about the souls of my employees. I think if I was anxious, as anxious about their souls as I was about meeting payroll, wouldn't that be a good thing? You know, and yet, uh, and yet uh, I wasn't. Uh, I'd pray earnestly for this payroll to be met, and I would pray for their salvation too, but not quite as earnestly. It doesn't sound right, does it? Just doesn't. Uh, instead, uh, we need to pray earnestly for the salvation of those around us, and and by the way, uh, pray for these other me- uh, needs that God knows that we need, and He's promised them, and He says He knows you, He knows you need them. But you see how value systems uh, affect the way we live spiritually as Christians. So our value system has an effect in our lives, in our decisions every day, and. There's a spiritual reality uh, to these things. Do you value your money more than you value a person's soul? Do you value your wife's happiness more than you value your own ease? Do you value your privacy more than you value helping a a neighbor that has a, a, a broken heart and needs some encouragement? Well, here's a, a good one for parents. Uh, when... Uh, when it has to do with family devotions and leading your children spiritually, do you value the souls of your children more than you value your relaxation time? One thing that you can say about Jesus as you read the New Testament is this. He always had the right value system in place at all times and in every situation. Uh, think about the... Uh, the situation of Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus came to him and he said, "He said, Master, we know that you're, 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 you've come from God, because no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him." And and uh, if you hadn't read any further, and that's all the further you'd stop, you you wouldn't expect this from Jesus. Jesus comes right to the point and he says, "Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." And uh, it seems like a total changing of the subject, doesn't it? But Jesus had the right value system in place. He knew what Nicodemus' greatest need was, and it wasn't to talk about his miracles or uh, uh, his uh, his uh, uh, legitimacy as the 
uh, as the Messiah or any of those kind of issues. He went right to deal with Nicodemus' soul. Well, uh, <clears throat> so uh, uh, I thought that uh, with all this philosophical underpinning that, that we've been talking about here, I thought, it, I thought it might help us then to consider these verses tonight. So I want us to consider... The uh, verse seven really is the only one we'll get to tonight. There is one who makes himself rich yet has nothing, and one who makes himself poor yet he has great riches. Now, most of the translations render verse seven as pretending to be rich. The, the modern translations do, and uh, pretending to be poor, which also agrees with the sense that's given by the old commentators when they use the King James which renders it the way we do here in the New King James, uh, one who makes himself rich and one who makes himself poor. And modern translations, as you some of you have them, say pretends to be rich or pretends uh, to be poor. Uh, they put a... Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, so we have two kinds of deception here. We have uh, uh, one who's poor, but he tries to project his or her image as being one that's wealthy, and then it's common for people like this to have this experience. Uh, they, uh, they buy too expensive of a house, too expensive of a car, too expensive of clothes, things they can't really uh, afford in order to pay, put on a big show. But really, they have no real net worth. Uh, and there's something obviously wrong with this person's values and uh, with their value system. And, and what's sinful about it? Well, first, it's an outward sign of inward pride. Pride was a sin that brought down uh, man in the first place. In fact, pride was a sin that brought down Lucifer. He says, I will uh, exalt myself and, uh, and be as God. And then that's how he tempted our first parents as well. You shall be like God, he said. Matthew 23, 12 says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, pride then leads to the second evil, and that's the evil of discontentment. George Lawson has this to say about that. He says, divine providence makes us either rich or poor, and it is our duty cheerfully to acquiesce in its disposal. In other words, to submit to God's will, whether we're rich or poor, and to suit our appearance and the way of life to our circumstances, which are appointed for us by infinite wisdom. If we can make but a poor appearance, let us remember him that became poor for our sakes and had nowhere to lay his head. If we are rich, let us be rich in good works and remember that we are stewards and must give account. And then 1 Timothy 6.6 6, um, says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. See, if we can have little and yet be content with it, then we have uh, much more and we have, we have, we're far better off than those who have great wealth and yet lack contentment. And that's obvious. So often a lack of contentment can be a torment to a person's soul. And it's often the case that the person who lacks contentment may actually possess very great things in this world. But always remember this truth from Proverbs 27.20. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. Uh, this is a perfect description of fallen men. Uh, godliness and contentment is such a great gain because it's an evidence of great grace and great victory over sin in our lives. Also then, 
Not being content is a sign of ingratitude and unthankfulness, which is a great sin. Romans 121, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. So a lack of thankfulness is very displeasing to God. It will lead to further darkening of our souls. Uh, never forget that a lack of thankfulness is a very great sin that will lead to other great sins. We need to be thankful. Now, one of those other great sins is the sin of covetousness. A lack of contentment is a sign of covetousness. But unchecked, lack of contentment and lack of thanksgiving will lead to more temptations uh, and, and, uh, and also to covetousness. And this, in turn, leads people to underhanded business dealings, Fraud, lying, adultery, and all other kinds of temptations. You see, then, the truth of the proverb, there's one who makes himself rich yet has nothing. You see how reality is twisted in those cases. They pretend to have something, but they don't really have anything. And the saddest part of it is the harm that it does to their souls and the souls of those around them. But then you have the opposite case in the rest of the proverb. And one who makes himself poor, yet he has great riches. Now, the character that the commentators describe here is best illustrated by the character of Scrooge. And we all know the character of Scrooge, of course, right? Here's a man who lives as a pauper, and yet he has great riches. You see how a person like this is the polar opposite of the other that pretends to be wealthy when he has nothing. George Lawson has this to say. He says, there are others who are rich and conceal their riches under an appearance of poverty. These are ungrateful to divine providence, which has bestowed on them this talent, not to be hid in a napkin, but to be laid out in serving God in the exercises of liberality. They defraud themselves and the poor and God also, while they sacrilegiously retain in their chests what they should be employed, what should be employed in God's service. But the truth of the matter, though, I believe, is that the Scrooge uh, example here is kind of far-fetched, at least in our society. These people do exist, but they're rare. And so I think if we're to make much of this kind of person, we're for practical purposes making a straw man. And I'll explain why I said that later on. Now, I'd like to also give you my interpretation of this passage so far, I pretty much stuck to the, the accepted and the majority view of the interpretation, at least to those commentators that I have in my library, and I have some, some real good ones. But I'm not satisfied with them. I've got to say that with this passage. I believe there's much more here. And not that their interpretation and application isn't correct. Um, uh, all those things that I've said so far are certainly true. So I'm giving you my interpretation. I'm not saying that their interpretation is wrong. Uh, it does apply. And even we've, uh, as we've been seeing, we see these things in people every day. And maybe we could say that my interpretation is not so much a matter of interpretation as it is application because, uh, you know, the, the, the very, one of the very important rules of hermeneutics is that one, one passage can only have one interpretation. can't have two. So, uh, so maybe it's more of a matter of application. You be the judge, and I, as I give you my what I, how I interpret this passage, it says there is one who makes himself rich, yet he has nothing. 
or who, as your modern translations will say, one who pretends to be rich but has nothing. It doesn't matter how you render it. We see all kinds of people that are laboring to be rich, and they're becoming rich with this world's riches. And, uh, and there are many that really are rich in this world's uh, wealth. Uh, but their riches are nothing but an empty bubble. Like the bubbles that kids blow with the little, you know, thing they dip in the bubble stuff and they, they blow it, you know, the bubbles. You know, they chase after those bubbles and what are they? They just, they just pop in their hands. And that's the way these riches are. They've they got great wealth, but they're like these bubbles that children are chasing. They make themselves rich, all, all right, as the passage says, but they're not rich towards God, and so they really have nothing, as the proverb says. Their riches are all a pretense. There's no substance to it at all. They're like these bubbles that these children blow. But look how hard they work at it. They scheme diligently to see how they can cheat their employees out of their livelihoods. How many corporate managers have cheerfully closed factories unnecessarily and sent those jobs elsewhere simply to make a little bit better of a bottom line, a little bit better profit on the bottom line with cheaper labor. And they have no regard for those people that have made those companies successful to begin with. And I could name a bunch of local examples as, as well as many of you could too of things that have happened in the last 30 years here right in Rockford. But I'll refrain from that. I don't need to. You know, you know about those things. Well, how many thousands of corporate executives have gotten their wealth by stepping on others as they climb the corporate ladder. They make themselves rich, don't they? But they have nothing. The Bible speaks of these same people elsewhere, not denying that they're rich, but showing that they're rich, and yet they have nothing. And I think of James chapter 5. Let me read that passage. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who have mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the ears of the Lord, and the, ear, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You see how these are rich, and yet they really have nothing. They've, they have corrupted riches. They have moth-eaten garments. They have corroded silver and gold. But much worse, they also have all these riches as a witness against them on the last day when they stand before God and give an account. And they have the Lord of Sabaoth, that is the Lord of the God of the ar armies, as their enemy. Now, you see, they've made themselves rich, but they have nothing. And actually, they have worse than nothing. Uh, their riches didn't come to them by God's blessing, but by their own wicked devices. They made themselves rich, as the verse says. Listen, unless God builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. Psalm 127. Whatever we undertake, whatever we ask, we need to, whatever we, we seek, we need to ask this question, is the Lord in this or is he not? Now, I know a young woman, a single mom, poor as she can be, and she was offered a fabulous job, a dream job, and a great salary and benefits. But all she had to do was overlook some sleazy and corrupt business practices by her would-be employer. 
and also to betray an important trust that had been placed on her. Now, I'm glad to report to you that she turned it down. She was greatly tempted, but she turned it down. She turned it down because she believed that God would not be in that kind of a business deal. She turned it down knowing that she'd have to go on struggling to make ends meet, but believing that God would take care of her. You see, she would not go where God would not go with her. Eric Little, as you know, he would not run on Sunday in the 1924 Summer Olympics, and so he was switched from the 100 meters, which was his specialty, to the 400 meters, which was not his specialty, which ran during the week. This put him at a very big disadvantage, as you know. He wasn't even considered able to win the race. Well, somebody handed him a, a folded sheet of paper the morning of the event, which read, in the old book it says, he that honors me, I will honor, referring to 1 Samuel 2.30. Little went on and went on only, not only to win the event, but he broke the Olympic and the world record for the 400-meter race. You see, God has his eye on us. And this kind of integrity only comes from a true conviction that God does have his eye on us and that the laws of God and the ways of God really matter in our lives and our value system is based on that. The things that we do and the business decisions that we make. And often we're confronted with matters that require an ethical and a moral decision. And every time that happens, we need to remember that God is watching. God cares about the decision that we make. Because, you see, there will always be pressure from the world to choose a route that's easier and quicker to success. And it's amazing how the devil will always set an easier way for us so long as we're willing to sacrifice just a little bit of integrity. Oh, God won't mind, they'll say, or it's only a little lie, or it's only a little cheating, and just this once, you'll never have to do it again, or everybody else is doing it. Those are the kind of arguments that were given to Eric Little. But the word of God cannot be broken, and it says in Proverbs 16:8, better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. And I think this young woman I mentioned is going to do just fine. God's going to make sure that she's going to do fine. So, so much for the first phrase of the verse. Now I want to consider the second part. And one who makes himself poor, yet he has great riches. Now I mentioned earlier that for the most part, I think that the Scrooge example is a straw man argument. Now that there are none that ever imitated him. But for everybody like Scrooge, there are a thousand that are like those that I've described that have made themselves rich by illegitimate means and they live like rich people do, not like Scrooge treated himself. Actually, Scrooge is more noble than they are because at least he wasn't living in luxury while he made others to suffer. Now, for example, he worked in the same cold office as his assistant. Was it Cratchit was his name? And... Uh, and he, he worked in the same cold office, at least. He wasn't in a warm office while Cratchit was in a cold one. So I have, and I'm sure most of you have, 
I heard of people that have lived a life of outward poverty, but they secretly were philanthropists, showed great mercy to the poor, and gave generously to missions. And they were truly generous people. There's no sin in this. There's nothing wrong with that. In this, they've been sincere followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the greatest problem with Scrooge was not so much how he treated himself, though we can find true fault with the extremes of that, but his great sin was how he treated others. The working condition of his employee, the refusal to help the poor, the lack of mercy he showed to those who, who had borrowed money from him, and, of course, the unreasonable interest rates he attached to his loans. These, these were his faults. But for a wealthy person to personally live as though he were poor is not a sin. And it's not a sign of ingratitude as long as he's not robbing God, not withholding good from the poor, and not doing harm to his own life, or if he's married, not requiring his wife or children to live as he does. That would be cruel and unchristian. But the greatest and obvious fulfillment of this verse is found in our Lord Jesus Christ himself, who fulfilled this verse perfectly. Our Lord, who is rich beyond all imagination, became very poor. And he lived as being very poor. But of course, unlike the Scrooge character, he was generous to the poor. He was rich in good works. And he was a great example of liberality. He fed 4,000. And another time he fed 5,000. He gave Peter a rich catch of fish and he had, had him catch a fish with a gold coin in his mouth so Peter could pay the temple tax. He was truly pretending to be poor while possessing great riches. At any time, he could have easily spoken into existence as many tons of gold as he would have liked. But instead, he lived off the offerings given to him and his band of followers, mostly women. But the greatest riches he possessed had nothing to do with gold and silver and rubies and diamonds and things like that. By far, and not worthy of comparison with these things, were the riches of the water of life that he offered. Freely to everyone without charge. Free of charge. Just think about the woman at the well. He could have given the woman at the well a bucket of gold coins instead of a bucket of water. Could have had a bucket go down in the water and pick up, come up with a bucket of gold coins. Wouldn't that have been amazing, huh? But he offered her instead living water. Uh, and of this living water, he told her, whoever drinks of this water, that is the water from the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. You see, Jesus knew the true value of things. And if he would have given her a bucket or a wheelbarrow full of gold and diamonds, she'd have been very happy about it for a while. But it would have done her no good in the long run, would it? She'd have perished in her sins and left all her wealth when she died. But now, at this very hour, she's in heaven with Jesus, happy forever, enjoying all the glories and the comforts of heaven, and nothing can ever happen to take any of that away from her. She drank of that which is much greater value than gold, 
that living water of life, and she has never thirsted again. And if you're a true follower of Christ, and you're forgiven, and you're on your way to heaven, you you owe it all to the one who made himself poor so that you could have such great riches. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. In 1 Peter 1, 18-19, You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So, How do you assess things? How do you put value on things? Do you value your soul as you ought? Do you value the souls of those around you as you ought? Do you value the blood of Christ as you ought? If not, think about these words from Jesus in Matthew 16 where he said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This is a statement of values, isn't it? See, you have a personal invitation from God to come to Jesus Christ and be saved. Jesus said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And what what a wonderful promise. And the very last chapter of the Bible, in Revelation 22, verse 17, says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let Him... Who hears, say, come, and let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. You see, the value of our souls is so much above the value of everything else in reality that there is no comparison. And so if you're not in Christ today, if you're not a Christian, you need to to come to Christ today. And uh, don't delay Because if you hesitate, the reason for your hesitation is because of your whole value system being off. You don't value your soul like you should. And you're valuing other things and putting them above the value of your soul. And we mustn't do that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. How he came to the earth and became poor for us. But he offered us such rich blessings as he stood there in the crowd and said, Come to me, and, uh, and he that thirsts, let him come and drink of the waters that I have. Lord, that these living waters are given by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that many here, and most here, have drunk of those waters. And we can testify to you that those waters are well worth the drinking. And those really are the, uh, the true riches. And so we pray that we would live like that and that we would actually live consistently or more consistently at least than what we normally do. And may you be glorified in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.